right, welcome back to Christ and Kingdom. I'm here joined with my good friend, Pastor Emilio Ramos. I'm Mike Tiemann. And in our last episode, we focused on Islam. And, you know, in the in light of current events right now with Hamas attacking uh, out of Gaza there in southern Israel and Israel's being, you know, posed to, to invade Gaza, the U.S. has sent an unprecedented uh, amount of, of machinery there into the, to the Mediterranean. Um, and we, we focused on the, the philosophy of Islam, the theology of Islam, the reality of, of jihad, and, and what their goal and aim is. And I want to encourage you to uh, go listen to that episode. And this part two episode is kind of the, the other side of this, the, the Israeli side. And there is, let's say, a lot of debate, a lot of disagreement, a, a lot of passion, you know, in, in this, this topic here. And so, again, thank you for listening to, for, uh, to Christ and Kingdom. Um, Pastor Emilio from City View, Texas, why don't you jump in and say, City, oh, View, Church sorry, City View Church in uh, Frisco, <laughs> Texas, why don't you jump in and say hi, um, and we'll get started. I got some questions for you, Emilio. Yeah, no problem. I was going to say City View, Texas would be a great name of a city. <laughs> uh, I'd like to move there. <laughs> no, I, I'm excited for this one. This is a very important one. It's kind of one that's on everybody's mind, obviously, with what's going on in the Middle East right now in Israel. Uh, as always, you get these questions that pop up about Israel and the significance and Bible prophecy and uh, the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and Daniel and everything else. And so, uh, you know, I'm getting text messages by all sorts of friends asking me, uh, what's your position on Israel <laughs> right now? I said, oh, I don't know. My position didn't change <laughs> in light of uh, in light of the uh, events that have just transpired. So I still have the same theology. <laughs> yeah, and let, let's frame the conversation a little bit. In the last episode, we kind of we 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 tapped it a little bit on does Israel have the right to defend itself? And the simple answer is absolutely. As a legitimate government, it has the right to establish its borders, execute its its laws rid terrorism so that's not what we're we're talking about here um and and you know in in this this topic emotions are 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 heightened and i had a a good friend um uh post a prayer request and, and i agree with this prayer request it was you know we need to pray for god's covenant people right now you know, now I agree. We need to pray for the Jewish people. We need to pray for the Palestinian people, right? Like we need to pray. Uh, but that that phrase, God's covenant people. Um, let Let's start there, Emilio. What uh, What does that mean? Like, is that a is that a, a a true phrase? Did God establish a covenant with them? Why Why not? Like, bring us. You know, basically teach the whole Bible uh, to me right now in in about <laughs> three minutes. Yeah, recount the whole the whole history of redemption, right? Yeah. <laughs> Three minutes. <laughs> well, you said, what does that mean? Well, I would just say what that means is that friend of yours is a dispensationalist. <laughs> yep. so, that's the quick answer is that that's what you got on your hands there. Okay. And look, a lot of my friends are too. So I get it, you know, uh, or at least they're premillennial and they still believe in a future for ethnic Israel. They would call themselves, let's say, leaky dispensationalists, as MacArthur even said once, right? And that all that means is that they believe in some kind of future for the Jewish, the Jewish people in the land of Israel and a future millennium and things like that. 
Uh, but obviously, I, you know, coming from a Reformed theological perspective, this also, uh, Mike, this also illustrates something that I've taught in the past, uh, and that is that, uh, you know, uh, Calvinism does not equal Reformed theology, uh, because a lot of these folks who are calling for us to acknowledge Israel as the covenant people right now um, are Calvinists. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they have, I don't know about your friend, but I'm just saying there, I, I personally know a lot of folks who would say that Israel is still, uh, within that category of the chosen people, that the promises that God made to Israel, he still needs to fulfill in the future somehow. And yet they believe, they believe in the doctrines of grace. They believe in the sovereignty of God, the five solas of the reformation and things like that. But to be reformed, specifically speaking, as I've argued multiple times, is synonymous not with the five points of Calvinism, but is synonymous with covenant theology. And we can debate the specifics and minutiae of covenant theology down to the mode of baptism and what separates Presbyterians from Baptists. Fine, we can debate that in an intramural sort of debate between covenantalists. But as it as it you know as it relates to dispensational thought, premillennial thought oftentimes, right? Uh, it, is, it is virtually a patent rejection of covenant theology to assert that the Jewish people today in Israel are still God's covenant people. Um, I would say that is a failure, not of, uh, not of just acknowledging what has happened in the New Testament with the church, but originally, from the beginning, at the outset, in the Old Testament, a failure of comprehending and grasping what the earthly theocracy was, and that the earthly theocracy is not ultimate, and that the, and that the old covenant that God made with Israel is not ultimate. And therefore, we understand that all covenant administrations, all covenant uh, all covenants that God made with man in terms of Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and ultimately in the new covenant are but administrations, as covenant theologians have pointed out, administrations of the covenant of grace, which is the redemptive covenant that God reveals, especially in Genesis 3.15, by setting forth a mediator, and that that mediator becomes the basis upon which we can be justified by grace through faith alone. And that that covenant, that covenant arrangement, the covenant of grace, is primary, and it holds preeminence over all covenants, so that you see these covenants that unfold throughout redemptive history not as ultimate. Uh, what is ultimate is a salvific covenant that God makes. That is what's ultimate. And it puzzles me for people that are Calvinists and not covenant theology folk, because they believe in election. <laughs> they believe in the sovereignty of God, and they believe in election. And I would, obviously, I would ask them whether or not they believe in the covenant of redemption as part of their theology of election. When that election and how that election took place, if not within the confines of the covenant of redemption, the intra-Trinitarian covenant between Father, Son, and Spirit in terms of the, not only the objects of redemption, but the goal, the purpose, and the means 
of that redemption, uh, then how do they conceive of election? Where does it, what does it belong to? How is the logic of election, uh, how does that make sense in the overarching economy of God? And so, these are deep structure issues that we're dealing with here today, Mike, because it's not as simple as we're, we're, we're debating the meaning of Romans 11, or, you know, we're debating the meaning of uh, something in the Gospels, okay? Um, you know, we're, we're debating typology. We really are debating theological systems is what we're doing. Yeah. And uh, I would just venture to say that, that that shows you the great divide between these two systems. Yeah, so we, we really end up with the idea in a dispensational framework of, of two plans— a plan for ethnic Israel, Jewish people under the Abrahamic covenant, and this completely separate um, idea that we would we would classify under the covenant of grace, but the coming of Christ, the new covenant, uh, all of those uh, all of those promises there, and and these two paths shall not um, not mix, right? And that's they they kind of keep such a a solid. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, a solid framework that there's there's no flexibility in and how does the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the promises given to Abraham and and the Mosaic covenant, how does it relate to to Christ um, and those those type of things? Would that be a correct um, uh, summary of 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 the problem? Well, I I think you're on to something there because. But I think, but I also think that it's not even a matter of flexibility, right? Um, I think it's a, again, it's a matter of starting points. Uh, because if you begin with the starting point that the the Israel the Israel theocracy, the Jewish theocracy, was an end to itself, right? Then you have already you've already started off on the wrong foot. If you don't understand that the earthly theocracy is typological of the heavenly kingdom of God eschatologically, then you will you won't see, in fact, how that the earthly is a a projection of the heavenly, and that the earthly therefore functions on a typological level, on a typological plane, yeah. and always therefore foreshadowed something greater than itself. And that is from the outset. That's what's so important, is that that is, uh, that is the per se reading of scriptures, they would say. That is the original intent. That is not an afterthought. That is not a re- rereading and a recasting of the material. That is the inherent original intent of the material. And that is what the New Covenant authors are laboring to show. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, that in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the apostles are not reworking the material, right? There, in a sense, there's no flexibility needed. <laughs> there's just an understanding of the original intent. And what the apostles are showing is that from the outset, that covenant promise that's given to Abraham is itself the gospel. It is not a, it's not a, a, a step to the gospel. It is not what came before the gospel. 
according to Paul, that's the gospel. Yeah. Galatians 3. And the word of God was telling Abraham that. And so, in other words, this is what Gerhardus Voss identifies in his biblical theology as the organic unfolding of the one central story of redemption, so that we go from seed form uh, to uh, that seed sprouting up and growing and budding until we get the full flower in the New Testament, okay? But it's one organic unity of thought. It is one program from the garden, from, we could say, from Eden, earthly Eden to heavenly paradise, it is one gospel program, one kingdom program, uh, and, it, and, and, and that's important for us not to walk away with concepts like, well, there's, like you said, there's two plans. There's plan A, plan B. You know, the Jewish plan failed, therefore God had to default to a secondary church plan. That, that, that to me is reading into scripture what's not there. And you, that is truly having to recast and rework the material of the original intent of the Old Testament authors. Yeah, and, and that thought of, of Voss really rocked my paradigm. You know, I was a, I was a Calvary pastor. You know, you, you have roots in, in Calvary and deep, deep, deep dispensational thought. And I sat there with flow charts and, and nerded out to no end, you know, trying to piece all these, these things together until I sat back and wait, wait, is there, is there one story, right? Like we know the end. Right, we know God's plan. We know God's intention. We we have the entire canon of Scripture in front of us. Um, what was God doing? And when I when my paradigm shifted to start thinking, as you said, uh, in in types and shadows and promises and fulfillments, um, the. <clears throat> the structure of, of my, my dispensational roots just started crumbling. And when I started looking at the covenants, when I started looking at that framework of the, the singular plan of God to redeem a people, to gift his son for eternal, uh, a redeemed people that his son was going to redeem for eternal fellowship with him and a new heaven and a new earth, that's that's the end. We know the end. Why would why would we why would we ignore that? You know, in in Genesis three, right? Like that's where God is is going towards, and then now He brings in a series of promises, covenants, commitments, shadows, events, you know, sacrifices, everything in in the Old Testament to bring about His plan. Now, Israel, ethnic Israel was promised a, a we would we would categorize that as a, a temporary promise that found its fulfillment in in Christ um, and they were they were promised a land they were promised a, a family they were promised to be a, a blessing so let, let's dive into that is that is that promise still um, like is God not faithful to his promise Emilio yeah it it, it that that is a Probably the crux issue right there is how do you interpret the promises uh, that were made uh, to ancient Israel? But as Paul tells us in Second Corinthians chapter one, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so there is first and foremost 
a Christological interpretation of those promises, even before it reaches any of us, uh, there is first identifying that Christ himself, in a sense, is the true Israel of God. He is the messianic Israel of God. And that is why you see Christ in the Gospels, whether it's at his birth, uh, whether it's at his baptism, whether it's in the, the wilderness of temptation, but that he is cut or the mountain of transfiguration. He is constantly fulfilling Old Testament themes and Israelic ideas because those things were ultimately foreshadowing the work of Christ, right? He is the one that led a people out of the wilderness, right? He is the one that people that led a, a, a company out of Egypt. He's the people that redeemed people out of Egypt, as Jude tells us. You know, there there are so many, uh, there are so many Christological uh, fulfillments in the history of Israel. So that Israel is first and foremost messianic, but then. After that, we do understand Israel to be also a foreshadowing of what God is going to do in the church among his elect. If you don't agree with that, now you're going to have major problems with a passage like 1 Peter chapter 2, where, you know, verses 1 all the way down to verse, what, 10, 11, uh, Peter is using Jewish language, and really Israel, Israel's titles to refer to the church. And so now you have a question of how, what right does Peter have to apply these phrases of a royal priesthood, a chosen race, uh, a holy nation for Christians? Um, now, and then if you say, well, First Peter uh, is only written to Jews. <laughs> well, good luck with that. You know what I mean? Because last I checked, I mean, uh, you know, the New Testament is written for the New Covenant Church. It's not just written for Jewish people. Matter of fact, the entirety of the apostolic doctrine could be said is a doctrine of inclusion. It is, is a doctrine of bringing together Jew and Gentile into one body, one root, one trunk of salvation, one. Uh, house, one, uh, you know, one, one man, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Uh, and so Peter is definitely showing you how these old covenant uh, slogans that were used and titles that were used of Israel apply to the new covenant church. So is James. I mean, James chapter 1 begins by identifying Christians as the, as the 12 tribes of Israel which is incredible, I would say even scandalous, uh, to use that language. And, and, and so, uh, you know, when we understand that, then we understand, okay, these promises have a completely different application altogether. And that what you thought you were thinking about these promises operating mainly at a geophysical level, promises of a land, promises of a temple, promises of a future, you know, uh, priesthood where, you know, there's going to be sacrifices, Zechariah says, you know, and that, you know, in that dispensational premillennial train of thought, you're now looking for literal fulfillment of a new temple, a new land, a new sacrifice, a new priesthood. Um, you get into all sorts of problems there. And, um, and obviously, the, that kind of, you know, uh, prophetic material 
is spiritual. Um, and there's so many, there's so many reasons to take it symbolically, you know, Isaiah speaks about, you know, the Mediterranean, (laughs) when, when God is going to fulfill these things in the kingdom of God, we should expect the ships of Tarshish to be sailing through the Mediterranean. I mean, referring to nations that don't even exist anymore. I mean, uh, somehow they're going to return in the millennium. I mean, it's, uh, you, you begin to really understand that if all you have is a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation devoid of a redemptive historical interpretation, then, then in a sense, you're your own worst enemy because that, that level of literalism is going to be your own undoing in your hermeneutics. And so, uh, and that's why you have folks looking at the book of Revelation and trying to fit every sort of literal fulfillment of every vision and every, every image and every picture that's given there and every creature coming up out of the earth and sea is, you know, you're trying to give some sort of literal fulfillment, usually having something to do with a Black Hawk helicopter or something. Yeah. And and you you use the buzzword in the dispensational world literal, right? And and I remember boasting, uh, no, we believe in a, a a literal interpretation. You you reformed people, you just allegorize everything. You you spiritualize everything without any any basis. You're just assuming upon the text, and you're actually the ones, you know, adding adding to it. Um, but I think everything you said there, even even Israel being the the type and shadow, and 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 you get to Christ and everything Christ did, it, it's like eerily familiar, right? And and Matthew brings that up. He he went into Egypt so that it could be fulfilled. I will bring my son, right? Like you start to see all of these imageries get brought back up that shed light upon the Old Testament. Of like, wait, I I I think maybe those were pointing towards something right Mm. the priest you brought the priesthood you brought the temple right wait i don't think that was the end goal Mm. right that was pointing to something and namely pointing to to christ and even in that temple theology right when we're looking forward to a a another temple and and we're looking and we're we're clicking on the um the websites today of what's the progress with the 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 items there that's going to be built where are they going to build the the temple how are they going to deal with the the dome of the rock situation and and all those things and you miss wait jesus said tear this down and i'll rebuild it and then it says he was referring to the temple of his body right like you you got to include that the, you know theology into your temple understanding Right, we're now we, you know, as as New Testament Christians, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and and that has to be included into your temple theology, this biblical theology yeah. that I think is is um, is what's missing. And I think you you what? go ahead. Yeah, no, no, that's true. There's a complex. There's a temple complex, and that complex is multi layered. Right, because believers are the temple, Christ is the temple, the heavens are the temple, the heaven temple, uh, the city is the temple. And then when you reach it to the very end of it all, Revelation 21, 23, 22, 23, there is no temple. 
Uh, <laughs> because the Lord is the temple. And so even the temple dwelling becomes an image, not even of a celestial physical temple in heaven, but all temple theology becomes um, indicative of ultimately our dwelling with God in his presence. And, uh, and that, that idea of dwelling, indwelling, dwelling in, it all comes from the being of God who indwells himself. And so the indwelling principle, you want to get very technical here, perichoresis, this idea of mutual indwelling, mutual coherence uh, of the members of the Trinity that mutually, personally, and exhaustively indwell one another, that is a sort of, if you would, Mike, the ultimate archetypal and architectonic principle of temple dwelling. It goes from the ontological trinity and the mutual dwelling of the persons to that being, in a sense, replicated in the dwelling of temples and in the dwelling of Christ within our own hearts and ultimately in the heaven, uh, the heavenly uh, state where we dwell with God and God dwells with us. So this whole principle, right, ultimately points to a kind of, uh, of sort of divine communion with God directly. And uh, it's really interesting how that develops throughout Scripture. But there's a temple complex for sure. You try to over-literalize it. What's the biggest concern here and what should be the biggest concern, Mike, is a couple things, right? If we're looking at this stuff that's going on with Israel and this terrible war and all these things that are happening, and we want to we want to be on the right side of history, as people say. Um, and for a lot of people, that means, well, we need to support Israel at all costs. And what we would say is, no, we want to support what's right. And we believe at this point, uh, and given the events that have transpired here recently, Israel is right not only to have the right to defend itself, but to have a duty to defend itself. Uh, but we're also asking the question of why do Christians support Israel? And if you think the reason for that is, as we started, Israel is still the covenant people of God, you're wrong. Uh, you're wrong. The only covenant people of God are Christians, those that are in Christ. He is now the epicenter of God's covenantal dealings with man. And so unless you're in Christ, you are not part of God's covenant people at all. Uh, it doesn't matter what your race is, what your ethnicity is. Which is made up of Jew and Gentile. Made up of Jew and Gentile. And when Jews become saved, when Jews become regenerate, they are put into the church. They are not put into a repristinated state of Israel. It's not what happens. It's not a newly constituted state or theocracy of Israel. They are put into Christ to belong to the one organism that is known as the body of Christ or the church. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, there's also we also we also kind of um, neglect Mike to to say what Scripture actually says about the Jews at that covenantal at that national level. We know in Matthew 21, for example, verse 43, where we know that Jesus said that the kingdom of God, in fact, would be taken away from the Jews. <laughs> it would be taken away from them and given to people that produce fruit of the kingdom of God. And then he follows that up by saying, 
the person that who falls on the stone, the the this 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 new idea of the kingdom of God, in a sense, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So now that comes directly out of Isaiah chapter eight, which of course applied to Israel as a nation. Jesus is now applying that in a new kingdom dimension to all of those who are in him, who belong to him, who believe in him. That now becomes the principle of salvation and judgment, regulated by, the, by those who are in Christ, by the body of Christ, no longer regulated by whether or not you are at odds with the nation of Israel. Amen. So I love it. We're, we're pastors. And, you know, the simple question at the beginning was the Abrahamic promise and fulfillment. And, and you know, we took a long way uh, to, to get there. But let's can you summarize for me? What's what's the land promise? What's the, the family promise, the blessing promise? Those that usually typical threefold promise given to Abraham. Uh how does that relate to Israel? How did that relate to Israel? And how does it relate to them today? If it does. Sure. No, that's a that's a really good question. I would say that as of right now, uh, according to Nehemiah, uh, I think it's Nehemiah chapter 9, or maybe we can look it up, but, you know, God did fulfill all his promises to Israel. Uh, there was nothing left that God needed to do for the people of Israel at the national level. Every promise that he made to them at a geophysical level, he fulfilled to them. He gave them all the promises that he made to the fathers. Um, he kept those promises, and he fulfilled those promises to them. But the reality is, is that now, in terms of the, the nation of Israel itself, what is it today? Is the nation of Israel today is no more pleasing in the sight of God than it was the day when he told Isaiah Ichabod or Ezekiel, right? My glory has departed. The nation of Israel today is no more pleasing to God than the day that Jesus went to the temple and overturned the tables and told them, you've turned my house, the house of my father, into a den of thieves. No, you, you understand, as Paul says, that wrath has come upon them to the uttermost and that they have committed the ultimate abomination by crucifying the Lord of glory. And therefore, it is very clear that they are, because they are not in the messianic redemption and the messianic covenant itself, that they now belong to what Paul calls the rulers of this age. And whether it's Jew or Gentile, whether it's, you know, think about a passage, Mike, like Acts chapter 4, right? Verse 25 and following. For truly uh, in this city were gathered against your, ser- your, ser- your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, right? Uh, the people of Israel, the Jews, right? The people of Israel to do what your hand and your plan predestined to occur, And so now the Jewish state is lumped in together with the Gentiles, so much so, Mike, that in the epistles, what do you find? You find, even in Galatians, that anyone who is not in Christ is now considered the Gentile, so that even the word Gentile has been transformed to mean 
those who are in or outside of Christ, those who know the Lord and don't know the Lord. So you can be a ethnic Jew, and in Paul's eyes, you, cat, you are categorized as a Gentile because you are not in Christ. That's, that, that, that's not only fascinating, but spoken in a first century context, that's scandalous. Yeah, that's beyond. Yeah. And so when we think of land promises and all of this, we understand that that belongs to the initial point that I made in terms of the original intent of the theocracy. The theocracy is a earthly projection of a heavenly reality. Those land promises are ultimately fulfilled, not in this world, they're fulfilled in the heavenly state, in the new creation, a new heaven and new earth. Now, here's the biggest issue to me, Mike, and this is the issue that when I speak to people, whether they're premillennialist or postmillennialist, if you fail the test on the two ages, if you fail the test of recognizing whether you're in the present evil age or the age to come, then your, uh, your theology can be rightly characterized as sub-eschatological. That, I think that's the right term, because whether you're thinking, and right now we're focusing most of our attention on premillennialism, you know, I get attacked a lot because people tell me, well, you focus too much on post-millennialism. Okay, well, today we're focusing almost exclusively on premillennialism, and what we're talking about here, dispensational premillennialism, but, you know, what we're talking about here is that if you believe in a physical, earthly, future, thousand-year reign of Christ, that is a sub-eschatological system, because it means that Jesus returns in all of his glory to less than the heavenly state. And now you have mixed the two principles of the age to come and the present evil age, and you have, in a sense, created a third age. Um, you know, I, this, you know, I've even heard MacArthur say, for example, that the millennium will be partially a new heaven and new earth. <laughs> And again, I would just kick, I would push back on that and say, where, where in the world does the Bible talk about a partial heaven? You know, uh, you either have heaven or you don't. And so I think it fails the test of the two-age structure of the Bible, which is everywhere in Scripture. Like right now on Red Grace Live, we're doing uh, Christian worldview, and we're taking everything out of 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. And 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3 is all about a contrast of two ages, this age and the age to come. Not three ages, two ages. And that's what you find consistently across uh, the New Testament. And I would say across the whole Bible, ultimately, when you understand that the New Testament uses uh, Old Testament texts to speak about the age to come, not of a diluted age or a diluted kingdom in a third mixture kind of age, but in a truly heavenly state. And so the land promises that are made in the Old Covenant ultimately relate to heavenly fulfillment because the entirety of Israel was an earthly projection of the heavenly state, of the heavenly kingdom of God. And so you remember a passage like this, Mike, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. Moses is instructed to do what? To, to build everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And what 
book of the New Testament picks up on that? The book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, that passage is said to relate to heaven. And that what Moses was shown was the heaven temple, the heaven tabernacle, not an earthly one. As a matter of fact, Hebrews specifies that he's not thinking of an earthly tabernacle. He is specifically talking about the heavenly realm. And so there you go. And you can have that same train of thought, the same flow of thought applied to Abraham. You know, and Hebrews is so important to the topic. You know, Abraham, he he received the promises, but he didn't interpret them as physical land fulfillment. Right? He in that Hebrews eleven, the author of Hebrews is praising Abraham, the man of faith, because he saw a heavenly kingdom. Right? He Abraham had a, a had an eschatological fulfillment um, interpretation yeah. of it, right? It, Correct. Uh, and goal, right? That the temporal, as cool as it was, was not the end. Um, and, you know, Hebrews is, is, you know, if anybody's struggling with this topic, a good deep dive into Hebrews. Um, while looking through that lens at the Old Testament is profoundly important to this this conversation. Um, yeah. And I think another topic we've we've kind of glanced at, or a passage I should say we, we've we've glanced by it, but it's it's Galatians chapter three. You know, when we we think of the idea as the Abrahamic promise or the the promises given to Abraham. And that's where we often stop. That's where, where our, our dispensational friends often stop. Well, Paul in Galatians chapter 3, he, he kind of expands on that, doesn't he? He definitely expands on it, and he, and he tells you that ultimately the promises were given to Christ directly, um, that in Abraham we're seeing something of a, of a replica in, in a sense, because those promises are made uh to the, the seed who is to come, which is a remarkable idea because what that's ultimately telling us is that almost transcendently, these promises are ultimately made not even to Abraham himself, but they're made to his messianic seed, which is remarkable, right? Because uh, that, that is what these promises ultimately relate to. And, uh, and, and I know a lot of people will struggle with that, but it goes beyond question that here Paul is thinking of these promises of an inheritance that were made directly to Christ. Verse 19, I'll read it for us, Mike. Uh, Galatians three nineteen. why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come and then here it is, to whom the promise had been made. And I actually, had a, I actually had a premillennial person in Sunday school tell me once, well, why can't that just be a reference to Abraham? <laughs> I said, Abraham is going to come after the law? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't, it's not, doesn't fit the timeline there, right? Uh, the law is added until the offspring should come to whom the promises were made. And it was put in place through angels by an, an intermediary, speaking of the law. So there is a 
coming offspring, and to him these promises were made. Well, there's no question in the context Paul has already identified this offspring as Christ himself. That goes back to verse uh, 16, mm-hmm. right? Who is Christ, the offspring. So ultimately, you're seeing that these promises, these covenant promises made to Abraham are ultimately fulfilled Christologically, and if Christologically, they are fulfilled in Christ and his people, the church. So, uh, you know, when you look at it this way, it does what Edmund Clowney says it does. It means that all scripture is Christian scripture, that the great majority of your Bible namely the Old Testament, is not Jewish scripture first. And then eventually, let's say after the Gospels, because that would be Jewish scripture as well, eventually you have some portions in scripture that are Christian scripture. No, no, it just means that all scripture is inherently Christian to begin with. And again, it, it's, it should puzzle us that if you have a Calvinist soteriology, that you should believe that this is a consistent doctrine of election to believe this covenant theology about who the promises are made to and the fulfillment of all these things being in the church. Amen. Yeah, and, and just to kind of backpedal a little bit to, I think earlier in this this podcast, Galatians 3 is also where you pulled that God preached the gospel to Abraham. Right, like it's it's all there. This is all this is all gospel stuff. The promises to Abraham. If you're if you're in Genesis chapter twelve, fifteen, and you don't get to Christ, uh, you're missing the entire purpose of it. Um, And that's why I fear. Yeah. No. Yeah. And Mike. And and how does Galatians three end? Verse twenty nine. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. There it is heirs according to promise now so all the language of inheritance which is tethered to the language of the land is now fulfilled christologically and redemptively through those who are in christ amen and we get heaven (laughs) it could not be clear so emilio um yeah you're 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 a replacement theology type guy that sounds pretty. That sounds pretty mean. Um, and uh, you know, oh, if I had a nickel, if I had a nickel, if I had a nickel for every time. Yep. And obviously, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, being dramatic here. But that that's the that's the accusation that gets thrown at you. The church has replaced Israel. Like, what what do you what what is what does that mean? What is tell me about that frame that argument for me? Well, it's it's kind of a typical response. Uh, that you get from people that haven't really truly studied covenant theology for what it is, that don't really understand typology, that haven't really truly understood the covenant arrangement of the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, and the administration of that of the covenant of grace throughout redemptive history. And that's why you get this sort of this cheap sort of superficial response of replacement theology. You see, well, you think the church replaced Israel. No, I think Israel foreshadowed the church. And that's the end of the story right there. I mean, if you don't understand that Israel is foreshadowing something greater than itself, right, uh, then then you, you have a real serious problem going the opposite way then because 
Uh, if you take these terms as totalizing, the promises made to Israel, the promises made to the Jewish people, the promises made to the physical land, you're, you're, you're bordering on universalism at that point in the sense that, okay, so then that means every single Jew, no exceptions whatsoever, because they are Jewish, they are technically Israel, they should have uh, the realization and the inheritance of all these promises. But you don't believe that, because you know that even though they're Jews, they don't actually qualify for what Moses and the prophets and everybody in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, is saying applies to Israel and their inheritance, but that it must be redemptive in its fulfillment. And so you, can, you yourself don't take it literal either without qualifications. And so I think these are the kind of the dangers that you get into in that hermeneutic in that system. Yeah. And, you know, when we approach the Bible from a, re a redemptive historical framework and we, we trace that theology going through that Israel at one time, they were, they received the covenant, um, you know, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all, all of those things. And now we as Gentiles, we're no longer, this is the, this is the beauty that of the gospel. We're no longer on the outside looking in, but we've been grafted into the, the, the covenant people of God in a fulfillment uh, idea that we now partake, as you just said, we're offsprings of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. This is, this should be so precious to us um, as Gentile believers, as Jewish believers, that God's plan was so much greater, bigger, um, more extensive than, than we understood when you're, you're just in Galatian or Genesis chapter 15, you know, when you're in, when you're in, uh, the Davidic covenant and second Samuel, like it, there, there's more to that story as the story unfolds. Now we look at this part of redemptive history and we go, wow, um, God brought us in. Right, God had God had a, believe it or not, God had Emilio Ramos written on his heart, you know, and and said he's part of my my promises. Right, he's an heir according to that that promise. That is that's that's amazing grace. Yeah, that's right. That's why we call this show Christ and Kingdom, because all of these promises, all of this theology, can be summed up in the fact that the purpose of God has always been to sum all things up in Christ and his everlasting kingdom. Wow. Amen. Well, that sounds like a great, great way to end this, uh, this episode. And want to thank you for listening to Christ and kingdom. I mean, what a way to establish and define our intent and purpose in talking about this theology and please like, and share, uh, this episode as we, we tackled some deep, deep and, um, uh, theology and theology that is produces a lot of emotional response. And my prayer is people can be patient and listen and hear the story of redemption as it unfolds. And I want to encourage you to check out Red Grace Media Live on Sunday nights at 7 as it's broadcast in redgracemedia.com. So with that, Emilio, always a pleasure. So great to have this conversation with you. Uh, to our listeners, God bless you all. <laughs>